When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Joseph Selby, who's been on here twice before. Last time we talked about the Yugas, and because uh, I'm an idiot and didn't know it was a book, I thought it was a lecture. I told him I was going to read the book, and I did. It's on Audible. Fantastic. It's actually a badass book. And so that's what we're going to discuss today. And also, Mr. Fancy Pants over here with a new camera and some good lighting. So <laughs> stepping the game up. But uh, Mr. Selby, please introduce yourself, sir, for all the new listeners who maybe haven't listened to the other episodes. Uh, well... My story basically is that uh, I have kind of a split personality or a, a uh, two sides of the same personality working in good harmony with each other. So I have a scientific bent and somewhat of a scientific background. When I uh, went off to college, uh, I was intent on getting a degree in science. I actually dived into a uh, major in microbiology at the University of Colorado, uh, which was a great department for that at the time, and was fascinated by the, the whole world of DNA and transferring information from the nucleus into the cell where it's picked up and built by ribosomes. Proteins are built by ribosomes. And uh, I was loving it. And then about midway... In my uh, four years of college, I had a profoundly life-changing experience with hallucinogenic drugs. And it really, I had other experiences before this one, so this wasn't the one and only I'd ever had. But this was just so much more uh, amazing than any of the others that I had ever taken that it changed my life. I was deeply and profoundly peaceful, calm, loving, intuitive. Uh, I liked being with people. People liked being with me. It was kind of an effortless flow of life. All things that I had aspired to and, you know, in a real way, continue to aspire to, that just made me the person I had always wanted to be and was never quite uh, able to, to reach even parts of that in other ways. So that was astonishing, uh, moving, and set me on a, a completely different trajectory from the science degree. I took a deep dive into Western philosophy to try to understand you know, better what had I experienced, how had I gotten to that experience, And that really wasn't very satisfying. Uh, Western philosophy is very intellectual. There's not a lot of heart in it. And there's certainly uh, very little, if any, direction for experiential approaches to the things that they talk about. They just talk about them in kind of um, the, the grand scheme of things, but not in the small scheme of things, as in what this means for an individual and how it can guide their life. So 
I had already gotten interested in meditation. I had already gotten more interested in each Eastern teachings. So I decided to leave the University of Colorado and go to UC Berkeley in California and took a deep dive there into Eastern philosophy, Eastern history, primarily of, of India. And there I began to, you know, get more of a sense of what I was really looking for. But ultimately, I didn't find it there either. But while I was there, I um, became a disciple of Paramahansa Yogananda, who wrote the Autobiography of a Yogi. A wonderful book, by the way. I recommend it to anyone. I can't tell you how many people have said reading that book changed my life. And then that led me to finding a community in the uh, foothills outside of Sacramento called the Ananda Community. And I moved there in pretty short order. And that became really my life path. But I never gave up on the science side. And in fact, the science side of myself was fed by the fact that Yogananda, who was one of the first or the first uh, Indian master to live in the West, not just to visit and teach and return to India, but actually lived here and oriented his teachings for a Western audience. And so he used many, many um, concepts, terms uh, from Western science to explain Eastern teachings, to explain yoga and, and meditation. And I just loved that because I already had the, the science background and to be able to see how he could pull those into a discussion of deeper truths uh, was wonderful. And I always thought that if I ever had a chance, I would you know, do things with that knowledge, such as writing books. And, and I always kind of inserted it into uh, classes that I taught. I, I taught hundreds of classes from the time I went there in approximately 1975 uh, through today. So it's, it's kind of been my MO in all classes that I taught. And then also part of what he brought to the picture of spiritual science was the yugas. And this is obviously our topic for today. And the yugas is an ancient Indian system of cyclic history or cyclic human development. And the implication of it being a cycle is that in our past, there were higher ages, and in our future, there are higher ages yet again, and that we ourselves are sort of on an upswing from a low point of history, roughly corresponding to when the Roman Empire was crumbling and most of Europe was in disarray. And I loved that. It was actually um, the exponent for it was Yogananda's spiritual teacher, Sri Yukteswar. And he was a modern day exponent of this, this ancient system. So I wrote the book that we're going to be discussing here drawing in my background in uh, both Western history and philosophy and Eastern history and philosophy 
uh, which involved, you know, archaeology, prehistory, etc. And the spiritual teachings that I've learned and, and begun to understand from uh, the, the decades of diving into them and put them together in this book. And well, the way I think of it is that it's a, the book is really a description of the historical footprint that was left by the yugas. And rather than approach it from the point of view of, you know, could this be real? Is it perhaps not possible to justify it as real? Uh, what could possibly have driven it? What are the problems with descriptions, how it was driven? I just said, I, I'm not going to approach it from that direction. I want to approach it from the direction of, is there evidence that matches the periods that Rishri Keshwar described that we recently went through and are heading toward? And so I looked into, does the archaeological record, does the historical record, the prehistorical record, does paleontology support the cycle, the cyclical nature of the cycle as he described it? And I found that there was a huge uh, amount of support for the way he described it. How would you tie in for all future listeners today is Wednesday? On a side note, actually, I say this a lot when I'm talking. If I'm about to refer to a current event, I say for all future listeners. But because it's not live, technically every listener of all time is a future listener. been meaning to make a note of that. But for all future listeners, today is Wednesday, March 9th, 2022 at 4.45 p.m. Eastern Time. Where would you tie in not just COVID but the invasion of Ukraine with the Yugas? Is that, does it support this? Is it in line with this? It's, uh, there's a very good match. You know, if you look at our times as a time of rapid change, uh, sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad. Uh, if you look at trends like the creation of the Soviet Union and the breakup of the Soviet Union, and now Putin trying to put the Soviet Union back together. And you look at the uh, incredible uh, coming and going of national boundaries in Africa and national groups in Africa. Uh, you look at the colonial times, which you know extended European power over all over the world. And then that power fell apart because it wasn't practical or morally defensible any longer. And it's clear that the last 100 to 200 years has been a time of incredible political change, national change, and has meant a lot of wars. Um, you know, I'm not going to go into every war that's happened, but, you know, pick one. Second World War uh, created immense change and changed a lot of national boundaries, including in the Near East. And now the Near East is in disarray and trying to refine its natural balance and on and on it goes. So all of this, according to Sri Yukteswar, would fit his description 
of Dwapara Yuga, which is the second yuga in the um, the cycle. The, the lowest most uh, yuga in the cycle is uh, Kali Yuga. And yuga simply means age. And Kali in this regard means dark. So we just went through the dark age and we're entering Dwapara, which only means second. When did, second yuga. When did we come out of Kali Yuga? Sorry. Um, Kali Yuga uh, finished in 1700 AD, although there was a, a transition period going mm-hmm. in and a transition period going out. So from 1700 to 1900, it was a period of um, transitioning mankind's understanding from the darker Kali Yuga to Dwapara Yuga. So I can can backtrack and talk about the qualities of all the yugas, but for now I wanted to point out that the beginning of Dwapara Yuga, and if you think of this as being um, like the face of a clock, and that 12 o'clock would have been the peak of the last highest age, and 6 o'clock would have been the lowest point of the lowest age, we're at about 7, heading up towards 12. Okay. And if you look backwards in time to the last few hundred years of the descending Dwapara Yuga, so this is a cycle that that repeats itself, it waxes and wanes. Mm -hmm. So at 12 o'clock, we had this highest age, and then it descended um, to 6 o'clock, and then it ascends from 6 up to 12. So that descending Dwapara age, the one that corresponds to our time, if you look at the last few hundred years of descending Dwapara Yuga, you had incredible political change. You had entire kingdoms come and go. This was the period when the Egyptian empire was starting to fall apart, uh, was pretty much had fallen apart. And by 700 BC, which was the end of Dwapara Yuga, the whole map of the what is now the Near East completely changed. You had the Assyrians, you had the Hittites, you had the Mesopotamians, and all those kingdoms existed three to five hundred years before seven hundred BC, and were almost all gone by seven hundred BC. So, if you look sort of from the corresponding periods as civilization rises to the corresponding periods where civilization has declined, you see similar patterns only in reverse direction. So what we're seeing is rapid change, but we're heading toward consolidation. We're heading towards a a time when there is not so much rapid change because the change has kind of worked its way through at least that element of Dwapara and uh, has, has begun to have stability. So what we're seeing now is no uh, surprise from the through the lens of Dwapara Yuga. Although a lot of people uh, say, well, 
if Dwapara Yuga is a rising age compared to a Kali Yuga, and if we're what according to Sri Teshbar would be about 320 years into this, uh, why don't we see more societal improvements? Why do things seem to be going to the dogs, right? <laughs> you know, you talk to just about anybody yeah. and they think that everything is falling apart. And in some ways they are, but in some ways in important ways that people tend to miss, they're coming together. Um, there's an entire writ- book written on this subject uh, that the title is eluding me. But essentially the the theme of it is things are much better than you think they are. That the, the constant uh, kerfuffle of 24-hour news gives us that continuous impression that, in fact, everything is going to the dogs. Is it, but, is if, it a, but if you take a step back, go ahead. I was going to say, is it, is, it, um, is it Apocalypse Never? Michael Schellen. Um, that one's more about climate. I know that there's a book you're taught future perfect. There's something that, that says, yeah, no, I know. What, okay. Sorry. Yeah. I know what you're talking yeah, about. No, I can't remember it either, but yeah. there are books like that, but just an odd fact from it, not odd, but one that people don't expect is that fewer people are dying in wars now mm-hmm. than in all of human history, you know, the written human history. And people would say, what? What? We just went through World War II. We went through, you know, horrendous uh, suffering across the world. But in fact, 75 years later from World War II, uh, big losses in wars are just no longer acceptable. You know, we're lamenting the Ukrainian war, and it is lamentable. And I don't mean to in any way imply that it's a good thing. Sure. But <clears throat> the number of deaths on both sides are in the hundreds to low thousands. Nobody knows for sure. And you compare that to World War II, where there was atrocious yeah. levels of death. It'd be 5,000 in the morning. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> so, although it's hard to see from the welter of bad news, There are tiny improvements like that. There's also um, expanded life expectancy, you know, worldwide. Uh, There are fewer um, uh, infant mortality, less infant mortality. Uh, Education across the world has improved. So they just don't get the press, but they are the indicators of this kind of steady invisible push of improvement that is Dwapara Yuga. So if it's 2022 now, where are we in Dwapara Yuga? So it's 1700 AD. We we moved completely from Kali Kali Yuga Yuga into Dwapara Yuga. How long is the transition period? Uh, Good question. So I should give some time frames to all of these. So Kali Yuga is 1,200 years, but there's two of them back to back. So you've got one that goes 
from five to six uh, uh, on the clock. And there's one that goes from six to seven on the clock. Got it. <clears throat> but there is a transition of about a hundred years uh, on either end. So Dwapara Yuga also has a transition. So also on either end. So it's 200 years then. from 1700 to 1900. Now I haven't really talked about the kind of overarching qualities of any of these yugas. And the Dwapara Yuga quality is awareness of energy, that mankind as a whole becomes more aware of energy and on a outward level can begin to <clears throat> exploit it. In Kali Yuga, mankind as a whole can only understand matter, where the energy that we understand in Dwapara Yuga is that which underlies matter. So that 200-year transition from 1700 to 1900 was marked by uh, discoveries in and uses of energy that remade civilization um, everywhere across the globe. So the first evidence of that was steam power. So steam power came about in the early 1700s and was um, coincided with what is known as the Industrial Revolution. So the Industrial Revolution was really driven by steam power. And in a way, what you could say is that steam was able to multiply the amount of energy that could be harnessed by mankind. So in Kali Yuga, the energy that they were able to use was human power, animal power, water power. And they did exploit them. They did use all of those. But when you go to steam power, it's like you multiply the amount of Mm -hmm. energy that can be uh, harnessed by, I don't know, tenfold, twentyfold, might be more than that. And because you could do that, you could have steam locomotives that weighed 150 tons pull another 1,000 tons of goods across the country. And it would just never have happened with human power, animal power, or water power. So steam power really was the primary way in which Tuapora sort of revealed itself. Uh, until the late or mid-1800s, when electricity began to be understood and then finally put to use. And electricity was many folds more powerful than steam power. So right up until about 1900, you were seeing these tremendous leaps in use uh, but then in 1900, when we fully entered Dwapara Yuga, a correspondingly deeper awareness of energy took place. And that was probably clearly most noticeable by Einstein's um, special theory of relativity, which he published in 1906, I believe. And 
the core of the special theory of relativity that we all know from the elegantly simple equation E equals MC squared. squared is that matter is basically energy in another form. That energy is congealed, condensed, however you want to think of it, uh, to form matter. And that if we can liberate the energy that is in matter, then we get, I don't know, a millionfold increase in energy that we can exploit from even electricity. And we saw this come about for good and for bad with 1945. The, yeah. the age of nuclear energy, we had bombs, but we also had nuclear power plants shortly thereafter, which are arguably still not so good, but just strictly looking at them from the point of view of energy, how much energy they could develop for mankind's use. And interestingly enough, Ukraine has six of them. And there are many countries who are still very dependent on it. Um, in its defense, which I won't go to great lengths to try to defend, the nuclear um, power plants that were built around the world have been many built for like 30, 40, 50 years because there was so much resistance to them and because of Chernobyl and Three Mile Island. Um, understandably, people were completely afraid of them. But because of that long time lag, people don't realize that there are <clears throat> much safer designs mm -hmm. that have never been built because people still are afraid of it, still suspicious of it. But these safer uh, designs not only might uh, avert any possibility of a Fukushima event or any of those um, disasters that had happened, there are designs that reuse their own nuclear waste. So they take care of um, that problem, which is still just a lingering nightmare for us as a, as a civilization. But nonetheless, whatever, whatever you think about them, uh, nuclear energy was brought about by this deeper understanding that matter is basically an illusion, that matter is just a seeming reality that's made up of uh, energy in a stable pattern, and that we, by knowing that, we can exploit it in many, many different ways. We also, in this same 20th century, in the same 20th century as Nuclear energy, um, we exploited um, solar energy uh, and, and other more subtle forms of, of energy that are still in kind of the, you know, research level like fusion rather than fission. So that if it depends on where you want to start from 1700 to 1900, civilization was transformed around the world because of steam energy and electricity beginning in the early 1900s to the present civilization has been even more transformed by 
uh, deeper understanding, not just in harnessing exploitable energy, but uh, the development of the computer chip and um, many other ways in which quantum physics, which is basically the discovery of what goes on inside that atom, has been able to exploit that knowledge uh, in other ways that it transformed the world in, you know, the internet, um, the the computer, and more to come, perhaps quantum computing. And we may be seeing more and more of these discoveries unfold in Dwapara Yuga. So this is why it's generally Dwapara Yuga, those of us who are, you know, talk about it all the time, we call it the energy age, just as, as a shortcut, uh, where Kali Yuga we call the material age. Now, going into the future, I mean, there's two ways we can we can follow this discussion. Uh, and one is we go into the future and we talk about what will unfold for us in higher yugas yet. Or we can look back at time and look at the evidence for there having been higher yugas. So tell me which way you'd like to to go. Well, I was going to say, are there any other aspects of uh, Dwapara Yuga other than energy, or is that the predominant defining feature? That is a very defining feature, but I think that there is two sides to that. And one is what I've been talking about is knowledge of energy and how to exploit it for outward human use. But more important for, uh, I think, the eventual fate of mankind, but certainly for a large movement of mankind right now, is this has opened us up to being able to be aware of and use personally inner energy. Mm. So as I was talking about that period of time at the end of Dwapara Yuga past, the descending Dwapara Yuga, where there was similar evidence for this kind of rapid change in nation states and political boundaries, etc. There was simultaneously uh, the practice of meditation and how to do it, the practice of yoga postures, um, Ayurveda, subtle healing techniques. There were similar techniques with traditional Chinese medicine or with ancient Egyptian medicine, which doesn't get as much play today because it kind of died where uh, acupuncture was kept alive by India and obviously ancient Chinese medicine was kept alive in China. And the point though is, is that all of those are now re-emerging to widespread interest in uh, across the world because we have a similar awareness to what they had back then. And so our awareness of um, the inner forces within us naturally draws us to wanting to meditate and, and, and feel it and to do yoga postures to feel it and help us go deeper into it and acupuncture and herbs and all the various uh, uh, ancient techniques of healing are coming to the fore because 
they're more subtle. They're based on kind of vibrational, subtle energy techniques rather than on molecular medicine, which is, you know, still the dominant uh, type of medicine today. But more and more people are being drawn to subtle medicine because our awareness has changed. So you have two sides to energy awareness. You've got the outer and you've got the inner. And I think the inner uh, is going to prove to be as transformative in the future as the outer exploitation of energy has been so far in Dwapara Yuga. So to go back to the question you posed earlier, the two directions to take the conversation, could you list those again? Uh, do you want to go forward in time? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to go forward. Okay. So Dwapara Yuga is 2,400 years in length. And that probably takes us to about um, eight, eight and a half on the clock face. Still not very far around the dial. But at eight and a half, it'll take us up to about nine-ish uh, is what's called Treta Yuga. And Treta Yuga, again, is not a very exciting name because it simply means the third yuga. Uh, but Treta Yuga's sort of keynote is thought and mind. And in the same way that in Dwapara Yuga, mankind will both exploit energy and become aware of energy inwardly, in Dwapara Yuga, mankind as a whole will exploit thought and also become inwardly aware of thought. So Sri Yukteswar, who's uh, you know, the, the authority that I look to about the, the core aspects of the Yuga cycle, he said that in Treta Yuga, mankind as a whole would uh, communicate telepathically that thoughts would be as real to us as individuals as energy is to us now, just familiar. And that thought might be exploited if you think of thought as having not only just uh, an intangible nature, where I can pick up on your intangible thoughts and you can pick up on my intangible thoughts, but thought is more than that. It also has a tangible power in that if you can visualize things with a very powerful mind, you can bring them into being. So Treta Yuga would be a time when minds could manifest things. And it would also be a time when um, on the inner level, mankind as a whole can tune into profoundly deep thoughts that undergird the entire universe, that their view of things is as much deeper than uh, Dwapara Yuga, as Dwapara Yuga was deeper than Kali Yuga. So we will become instruments for the use of that power as individuals and technology will fade away if it hasn't already faded away in Dwapara Yuga 
because it's just unnecessary. The, the abilities of the mind to, to manifest, to create, to communicate, to know intuitively uh, will be just so much greater than anything technology could come up with that society as a whole will just, will, will just lose interest. So Treta Yuga will, if you follow the analogy of the clock, uh, you know, we're going from about uh, eight and a half uh, up to nine, maybe a little past nine. And now we're going from a little past nine all the way to 12 o'clock. And that is because uh, Satya Yuga, the last stage, the highest age, is 4,800 years in length. Uh, so Trata Yuga with 3,600 years, Satya Yuga with 4,800 years are much longer combined than Kali Yuga and Dwapara. Kali Yuga and Dwapara Yuga basically have short spans and are low on the low on the cycle, where both Trata Yuga and Satya Yuga are much higher up in the span and, and last much longer. Now, Satya does have a, a cool meaning. Uh, Satya means God or God consciousness. So Satya Yuga is the age of God consciousness. And in this age, mankind as a whole will know that consciousness, infinite intelligent consciousness exists and that just as thought underlies matter or underlies energy, excuse me. In Satya Yuga, they'll know that consciousness underlies thought, which underlies energy, which underlies matter. Mm. And that this will be commonly understood. Now, I think given the, the trajectory, the current trajectory of uh, population growth in the world, that we're going to see a, a, a peak of human population reach. Demographers disagree whether that's going to be in 50 years, 100 years, 150 years. But somewhere in there, uh, demographers believe that the population growth or the total population is going to start going backwards mm -hmm. in, in size. Uh, and the reasons they put forward for that is that as uh, nations in the world in the present have reached greater prosperity per individual and greater education per individual, their uh, birth rate has declined. And in America, our birth rate would be going backwards if it weren't for... Um, uh, immigrants. Mm -hmm. And in Europe, the same is true. If they weren't seeing immigration coming in from Africa or from uh, the Middle East, most European countries would already have seen a decline in population from their peak. But in a hundred years, the assumption demographers make is that uh, most of the world will have achieved greater prosperity and greater education, and that worldwide population numbers will start falling. And once they start falling, they actually fall 
in, in real numbers tremendously quickly. So let's say that we reach 9 billion, which is kind of a guessing point for uh, demographers in the next 100, 150 years. In 100 to 200 years after that, our population could be down by a billion. And 100 years after that, it could be down by 200 billion. I mean, 2 billion. So it doesn't take long. And by the end of Tuapara Yuga, we could have population, worldwide population, under a billion. And if the trend continues, as I believe it will, by the end of Treta Yuga, we could have population in just the millions. And this could explain why, if we're looking back in time to Satya Yuga, this could explain why there, why there isn't much to find in terms of um, artifacts yeah. or architecture left behind is because as societies with the ability to manifest things, one. Yeah, it's, you need less and shit. two, with a consciousness that is not interested in things, frankly. <laughs> not, not interested but, in houses and Ferraris and... Yeah, or even even building grand temples, yeah, which, yeah, you know, today we would think of as being a spiritual expression of a, of a civilization. They don't need it to be big and grandiose. Um, there are um, temples that were built in Satya Yuga in the past, but they're very simple, very small. So what I think most people lived like in, in Satya Yuga was simple. And then from a outer point of view, if we knew nothing about what they thought or what they were capable of perceiving. We would think that they're, they were simplistic cavemen. Yeah, they were, they were hunter-gatherers or that they were but, just people. But who they might have been a bunch of Buddhas just walking around just in ecstatic bliss and they don't they look they might look at us and go oh those poor guys they need, yeah, car, they they need cars <laughs> and houses oh look at these poor schmucks they got to get laid and have a fucking penthouse they look at us yeah, like we're cavemen yeah or, or idiots whether cavemen yeah. or not yeah they probably feel <laughs> yeah, bad i mean and i'm sure they wouldn't actually look at us as idiots but they might feel sympathy for us i that think that's what it, yeah we would have a society that draws us to work 35, 40, 45 hours a week to maintain a house and a car and a, and a family. Um, that doesn't and there's no time. time for us to have an inner life. There's no time for us to touch that realm of consciousness that is their moment-by-moment moment reality. So that's kind of going forward. And what can be helpful is to just keep going around that discussion and talk about the yugas from the point of view of what might have been happening in the descending Satya Yuga, the last one. And that started at about 11,500 BC and it went to 6,700 BC. So that's the 48 year, 48. 4,800 year span of 
descending Satya Yuga. Are you have you watched any of the Joe Rogan episodes with uh, Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson? I haven't caught him on on Joe Rogan, but I'm very familiar with uh, uh, Graham Hancock. In fact, I, I know him personally. Oh, really? And yeah, um, I mean, he's kind of the uh, the guy that set in motion a lot of this interest in the ancient past um, the, with his, you know, fingerprints of the gods book. If you think uh, magicians of the uh, yeah. yeah, and but what you what, what I think you would really like about Randall Carlson is. Randall Carlson is so Hancock's all about like the, the evidence for these right the loss of rare species with amnesia. Randall right. Carlson is uh, they they met, and Randall Carlson had this theory about how there was the Younger Dryas. There was an impact on like the North Pole eleven thousand six hundred years ago, which liquefied the North Pole in a second and led the Great Flood over the world. And when he and uh, Graham Hancock met, all their stuff laid out perfectly together. And mm-hmm. Randall's explained physically what happened or yeah. And Graham's explained kind of like the human side of it. How come we don't find any relics? And what you're saying is, well, one, they were probably so enlightened. They didn't need any. And then the little bit that was left just got bulldozed by this quite li- literal biblical wave. Right. I, I, I'll, I'll try to find one of the, you need to watch it when they're, no, they're no, I'm, I'm familiar with that. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. Robert shock is another, yeah. Try, uh, try to uh, you might be in interested it. in, and and he thinks that yeah, the Sphinx, uh, uh, yeah, that there was a, a basically a, a, a plasma event that wiped uh, out ancient civilizations, uh, and that that's why you see these like squiggly uh, forms on a lot of uh, caves, yeah. etc. That are that are still found in the uh, the world. I disagree a little bit with. Uh, Graham Hancock on that, because as I already said, I think the population that would have existed back then would have been very small. Sure. And I think it would have been nowhere near the glaciers. I think they would have all been, you know, either side of the equator in the kind of nice temperate zones. And thus you would have the you know, Tigris-Euphrates Valley, you would have the Ganges Valley, you would have the Yellow River Valley in China, uh, you would have, you know, there's a similar location in um, South America. I think they all did live and survive. They weren't worried about the glaciers melting because they weren't in the glaciers. Yeah. Uh, it would explain wiping out something like New York City, <laughs> uh, if, if the rem- remnants of New York City still existed, you know, a New York City that was built 36,000 years ago, then uh, the glaciers would, as you say, have just mushed it to smithereens and left no trace. I but I don't know if you really need that explanation I think for why so. we didn't find anything uh, post 11,500 BC. If I haven't listened to it since 2017, so I'm probably very foggy on it. I think what Randall Carlson's idea was, it was because the, it wasn't that they melted in like the sea. It, it like, it was melted in like an afternoon. And what that caused was 
a super destruct. It wasn't like a casual rising of the sea levels. It was just this gargantuan, like thousand foot tall tsunami that it didn't matter if you were near the glaciers or not. It was like all of the. And then what I think is, I think I think that actually ties into what you were saying. You probably had very few things because they were just on a different. The only structures they had were probably the equivalent of like our pyramids. To them, they were like, oh, yeah, no, those are the old primitive people. So like what little things were left were probably just finished off. I mean, granted, this is all wild conjecture, but. Yeah, no, and there would have been a sea sea level rise, obviously, if there was that big of a uh, a glacier glacial retreat, whether it was in in a few minutes or in uh, a few hundred years. So there probably would have been people settled on the coast who had to retreat inland as a result of that. But if they didn't have much, there would be nothing to find anyway. Yeah, there's nothing to find anyway. But there are some edifices that occur around 10,000 BC. And they are in an area in Turkey uh, where there are several such finds. But the one that has come to attention is the one called Gobekli Tepe. Yeah, the buried one. Yeah, the buried one. Um, And for those who who are unfamiliar with it, uh, these structures were built all around a a hilltop. And these structures were rings that ranged in size, uh, but were all fairly small. And each ring had a, a, a basically a half wall so that it was open to the sky. And around that half wall, there was a bench in most of the cases. And then uh, piercing that half wall at various points, there were these um, statues that were, you know, primitive in one sense and advanced in another. Uh, because they may have been betokening something other than the human form. Uh, they were meant to, you know, be a, uh, an expression of higher consciousness. But they had bas-reliefs carved on them, and more and more research suggests that they had astronomical alignments as well. Uh, the floors of all of these were, were uh, terrazzo, so they were like pounded stone floors, which gave them, you know, a, a step up above uh, just dirt floors, which you might expect. But the amazing things about these was they weren't lived in. They weren't for inhabiting. There is no evidence of people having lived on this hilltop, which you usually get with trash pits or fire pits. Um, And they clearly weren't defensive because they were just half walls. So attackers would just be able to, you know, walk right in. Uh, So if they didn't live in them, if they weren't defensive, then the only thing really left uh, is that they had some kind of sacred significance, that they were sacred sites or used for sacred purposes. And this fits Satya Yuga. This fits that time that if those people were going to build something, it would be simple. It would be art. 
it would be, but it would have a spiritual purpose. Sure. It would, it would help people uh, meditate. It would help people transition to higher consciousness. And that that would be its own purpose. And that it might also, and this is, you're alluding to something that's kind of interesting about them, again, from this point of view, is that it's easy to imagine with people of that level of consciousness that these sites would build power. Mm. That if you had these really highly advanced uh, people regularly meditating in these sites, meditating together, that those statues, those walls, that floor, everything would begin to resonate with that really high frequency vibration and they would be powerful. Uh, even today you can go to sacred sites around the world and it's, it's palpable. Yeah. You come into some temples and it's, Napole- you feel it. Like Napoleon and the, yeah, Napoleon and the pyramid. And not only that, yeah. but yeah, you could, you could imagine that those things might have a purpose as we couldn't understand it. Just like if we dropped a nuclear reactor in front of a, someone from, I don't, I don't know, from, from Genghis Khan's age, they would just right. look at it. They wouldn't understand what, what <laughs> it was possibly yeah. capable of. And yeah, no, it, yeah, maybe it's a machine. They just stable there. Yeah, they'd stable their stable their horses in the cooling tower. Yeah, they would. Yeah, they wouldn't know what it would just be. So, uh, yeah, it would be so absurd. It would be. I mean, and maybe not only that. Maybe it's like you know like the idea that the, like you talked about, like the Giza power plant. Like maybe it's tapping into something that you know. Again, if you brought a solar panel back to ancient Egypt, they might be like. How is this, or even if you brought it back to the the industrial revolution, they'd be like, how is this going to power my textile mill? They'd think it's just a shiny, we'd be like, no, it's absorbing the sun. And they'd be like, what are you talking about? Windmill or bust? And, or like water wheel or bust. So we might be looking at this like, oh, look, it's Stonehenge, primitive people. Maybe they were harnessing something that made cold fusion look like coal, right? It's Right, or it's more more likely to be spiritual fusion. Sure. Which, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So instead of going to the energy side, I don't know, the local uh, yoga posture studio, yeah, uh, where you, you know, you do feel better, right? You, yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You, you increase your consciousness and helps you relax, you meditate better afterwards. This would be like that, only, you know, 10,000 times more powerful as a place to go and practice. Yeah. So the, the thing that you alluded to that is, makes this intriguing is that for some reason, and I believe it's probably this one, uh, these all these sites were deliberately buried yeah. about 1,500 to 2,000 years after they were built. And it could be, makes a certain amount of sense, they were simply too powerful for people to leave them available. And that they... They filled them on purpose to keep people from, I don't know, being hurt by them, basically. Like like loose nukes after the fall of the uh, the Soviet Union. Right. <laughs> got to get rid right. of them. Got to track them down and got to get rid of them. Yeah. And there were a lot of these. There were 20 rings around this one hill. There's another hill in Turkey where there might be as many yet. Uh, so we have that intriguing aspect of, of Satya Yuga. The other thing that comes down to us from Satya Yuga is um, lore and myth. 
I prefer to call it lore because myth implies to most people that it's a uh, not a real thing. Lore has the implication that it's knowledge. Mm-hmm. And the one bit of lore that comes down through every ancient civilization is that there were uh, places on earth that are, were considered to be paradise. Yeah. So we had Eden in the uh, Bible. Uh, we have other places, you know, the Mesopotamians and the Chinese, etc. They all have that. But the one thing they all have in common also is this notion of a tree or an axis in the center of paradise. Yeah. So yeah. we have uh, in the Garden of Eden, we, you know, we have the, the, the tree at the center that, that gave us the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, in Mesopotamia, they had the axis mundi, the axis of the world. What modern-day saints say about those traditions is that they weren't talking about real physical places. They were talking about a teaching, and that the teaching was is if you get into the center of yourself, if you get into your axis mundi, or if you get in your own tree of life, then you're in paradise. Mm. And that that axis, that tree is, is the spine. And if you know anything about Eastern teachings, you've probably heard of the chakras, the chakras being centers, Kundalini, Kundalini energy, life force. So those myths, those bits of ancient lore that came down to us indicates, well, one, that they knew about this, but two, that this was the most single most important thing that they could pass on to succeeding generations who were now in a downward cycle. So it's sort of like the, uh, you know, the old thought puzzle, you know, if you were alone on a desert island, what would you want to have with you? So you, you turn this uh, around in a way and you say, well, if there's anything that we could do to help you leave behind to leave behind for them to find, what would it be? Maybe and you think that's like what the pyramids are or something. Yeah, exactly. every, everything it infers from the uh, procession of the equinoxes, equinoxes to the north south to the longitude latitude to you talked about the Puri Rees map. Like that's what I've always thought that. Like if you left something behind, you would leave something behind that on the surface looked like oh, it's a it's a cool pyramid. But as you dug deeper, it started to give little clues. You're like, wait, how do they build this? And that would intrigue you more. And then you'd start to look at it and be like, well, let's line this up with satellites and stuff. And next thing you know, you'd be like, this is not an accident. It was, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's, yeah. Sorry for interrupting you. Yeah. 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 Uh, What would you leave behind? What would you leave behind? So, um, I think the lore was the part they left behind from Satya Yuga. When we go into descending Trata Yuga, I think the lore that was left behind, uh, was in oral traditions such as the Indian Vedas that were a, a core teaching about how to get into the spine and how to um, use the powers of the mind because 
as we were talking about in the ascending Treta Yuga, ascending Treta Yuga is all about um, powerful inner perception of thought and the ability to use that thought uh, to your advantage. So the Vedas are a good example of something that a Treta Yuga person would understand, but has been very hard to understand for a Dwapara thinker, let alone a Kali Yuga thinker. Because when you read the Vedas just plain and simple, they're translated by Western scholars as almost stories about a um, agrarian society and um, how people herded cattle. But according, again, to the, the saints and sages who understand them more subtly, when they talk about the word that has now been interpreted to mean cow, they're talking about inner light, the perception of inner light. Mm. And so if you're a herder of cows, you're a herder of interior divine perceptions. And that everything in the Vedas has that subtle meaning most profoundly. And the rest is just sort of accreted to it over the millennia. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah. Like putting something in a copying machine and then like whatever, whatever, you know, any typos or like a piece of dust or something, it gets copied and added and added. And the reality is, is we're missing the point. It's like, oh, they aren't lowly shepherds. It's like, no, they're the, they're the, they are these masters of, of light source and internal bliss and awareness. And we're like, oh, it's a shepherd with sandals walking around sheep right, poop. And right. it's like, no, no, dude, these guys are, are, are booted. Like, yeah. Yeah. And it's not so much, uh, uh, it's interesting you brought that up about like the copying machine, because I would agree with you in almost all other contexts of ancient oral traditions, except for the Vedas, because okay. the Vedas, um, the givers, the bestowers of the Vedas simultaneously bestowed a system of keeping them accurate. Okay. So that even through generations of oral tradition, they had a way of, you know, this is a really simplistic way to say it. But if you started to say in a way that it didn't rhyme, then you were making a mistake. Oh. Okay. And you had, you had to f refine your way back to the way it rhymed. Now, that's super simplifying uh, how they actually did this. Because there were 10 different ways to check to make sure that each Everything generation okay. had actually done it perfectly as the previous generation. But what became lost, maybe, you know, by Twapara Yuga descending Vapara Yuga was what it meant, what the interpretation of it. They had the words still, but they didn't necessarily have the, the inner meaning any longer. Um, so those are a couple examples of artifacts that you might consider from Treta Yuga, even though they are soft artifacts, if you will, that are, that are tradition. Then we get 
to the, the Great Pyramid. You know, what a favorite area for me to talk about. Uh, and you went right to the heart of it. I think that uh, the Great Pyramid was just in the same way that the Vedas were a way of um, leaving behind something that would be good for mankind in the future. I think the pyramids were a way of leaving behind something that would be good for future generations. Uh, the, the Great Pyramid was built pretty close to the beginning of descending Dwapara Yuga. And if you recall, there are transition periods uh, from and to each um, Yuga. So 3100 BC is the actual um, time when Treta Yuga becomes Dwapara Yuga. But the transition period, once Kali Yuga, or excuse me, once Dwapara Yuga begins, is another 200 years. So there was 200 years of time in which mankind as a whole had to transition from this higher age of Treta Yuga into a lower age of um, Dwapara Yuga. And it was not long after the end of that transition that, or even, even before the end of that transition, that the Egyptians started building uh, pyramids. And they there are three at least. There's the Bent Pyramid and the Step Pyramid and the Saqqara Pyramid. Um, they were all built before the Great Pyramid. And it was as if they were trying to, you know, figure out the best way to take the knowledge of Trenta Yuga and turn it into something meaningfully powerful for Dwapara Yuga. And by the time they got to the Great Pyramid, I think they had figured it out. And its purpose was to elevate people's consciousness, that the Great Pyramid could take in subtle energy and concentrate it in the king's chamber or the queen's chamber or in perhaps other chambers yet to be discovered that are higher than the king's chamber. And that really was its purpose. And I think that it had to have, in order to handle that much energy, it had to have just a lot of mass. Yeah. Yeah. But the only, the only real reason for it to be so big was to concentrate this energy and to, to, to store the energy that then a properly prepared initiate could go into the king's chamber and be like kicked up a level of consciousness beyond what they were going to be able to do on their own. Yeah. But they had to be prepared that if they went in there unprepared, it could fry their circuits. Yeah. Napoleon, right? Yeah. I mean, a lot of people have experience, even in the dilapidated condition of the pyramid today, where the um, limestone cladding mm -hmm. no longer is there. The, the, the pyramid looks like a, you know, 
bunch of stair steps going up. It didn't look like that when it was finished. Oh yeah, no, they originally. looked they looked alien when they were finished. It was it was, it was badass. It I was mean, totally can, badass. It was can, smooth. Can you imagine perfectly that? smooth? Yeah, and perfectly white and gold tops. That would look insane. They look insane now in 2022 in their dilapidated, fucked up condition. Can you imagine seeing them today in limestone with gold tops? Now imagine going back to a time when you've never even seen like there's no TV or cars. Can you imagine seeing that on the horizon? You're just some dude who you've never <laughs> shaved in your life. You've never brushed your teeth. You're just you're just you're fucking. You're eating. You're drinking. You're sleeping. And then you see a pyramid shining yeah, they, white. They shone in the sun for miles just, and miles away. And not only that, the relative height is more absurd to us than like the Empire State Building is. Yeah, half the height of this thing is uh, Empire State Building. But, but, but we're used to the Empire State Building and other buildings. I mean, yeah. back then, like the tallest thing was like your tent. So that would be like today <laughs> – Seeing a, the Burj Khalifa is is, is uh, what two thousand eight hundred feet tall. That would be like seeing a ten thousand foot tall tower made out of like platinum and diamond. And, uh-huh. if, you, and if you got close to it, you know it, you got a better high than any drug. Right. That's what it would be like. Yeah, yeah, no, that always melts my mind. Imagine seeing that you've got a donkey, you've got some like I don't know. E. coli, like tainted water. You're just, you don't know a thing. Well, there had to have been a, a, a significant part of the population who, who did actually know what it was. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I'm, pro- I'm projecting. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah. But that's sort of the way it was looked at 2000 later, 2000 years later, when no one really understood what it was. It popularly became thought to be a tomb. Um, which is ridiculous because one, it, it's just monumental, huge, unnecessarily huge to be a, a tomb. Yeah. Uh, but it's not a pretty tomb. If you go inside, oh, um, yeah. it's bare bones. It doesn't have any of the, what you would expect to be the, you know, the gold filigree and the pomp of uh, an emperor's, it's not Versailles. final resting place. And it, there's not even any evidence that kind of stuff was stolen because there's nothing on the walls. They're just flat. Yeah. Um, and it really feels much more utilitarian, yeah. like, a, like a, you know, a factory building than it does uh, like something ornate. Plus there are air passages into the, the major chambers. You would never put an air passage into a tomb. The whole point of the tomb is to keep the air out, to keep the body from decomposing. So you wouldn't just deliberately make the ultimate tomb uh, a failure <laughs> by, uh, you know, perpetually keeping air in the chambers. The only reason there's air is because people were in them doing things. Uh, and there's a lot of wonderful things about them. How the precision of the oh yeah pyramid is way beyond anything that uh archaeologists today can explain as to how they could have been built using stone tools and rope uh and even if you give them the advantage of of the square 
and uh, you know the dividers, like you think of the Masons. Given all that stuff, you still can't explain the precision that, uh, to which they were built yeah. uh, from from that kind of knowledge. I remember when I first started learning about Graham Hancock. This is back when I was really into graphic design and Photoshop, and I. I couldn't put it into words. I think you've put into words. It's like if you left something behind on an island, what would it be? That's what I was aiming for. Was like, how would you let people know that this wasn't just a pyramid? That as time went on, you'd have to start to, you'd have to look at like history again, like the Piri Reis map. You'd have to start thinking about latitude, longitude, and ice. You'd be like, wait, 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 hold on. There's no way that this could have. There's no way this could have worked, right? It's, and the only thing I could think of is I made a Photoshop of it. It was like a picture of one of the the astronauts on the moon, and standing by a crater. And in the crater, <laughs> in the crater, I had I had photoshopped one of the heads from Easter Island. Right. And that's which it, it that's the only way I could convey the feeling. You'd see that, and you'd go, not only how did they make that, how did it get here? And just that one thing, just at the head of Easter Island, sitting in a crater on the moon, that simple existence would have to imply so much and that's kind of how the pyramids feel to me right is their implications and then matching up with history and discoveries and you're going wait 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 we are completely wrong um yeah no i agree with that yeah it's by the way i I can i gotta wrap this one up in like a a minute or two i got another guest in 10 minutes we can do like five more minutes um we can uh, we can definitely continue this podcast. I feel like I definitely should have a lot of more time for this one. Um, but where should we end this one? And well, let me let me just finish the, the loop. Oh yeah, sorry, sorry, I was I interrupted you. Sorry. Well, no, we were almost there. Um, <laughs> so we've gone up from you know Dwapara Yuga going into the future, and then I made us jump over to Sacha Yuga in the past, and we've descended now through. Uh, Satya Yuga, Treta Yuga, and into Dwapara Yuga. But we haven't talked about Kali Yuga at all. So Kali Yuga, ironically, is not only the lowest age, it's the best known age by historians. And when people say this is what we know from recorded history, they're basically talking about almost exactly the time frame of Kali Yuga, so 700 BC, roughly, that's when the Egyptians were petering out and the Greeks were coming on and then eventually the Romans. And then all the way up to 1700 AD, uh, that whole span has been written about endlessly by historians. It's ironic that it's the worst period of mankind, because so much of what historians and others do with that data is they extrapolate forward with it. They say, you know, if it was like this, then, uh, then that means that human nature is pretty fixed on the way it was at that time where, you know, people were just trying to survive. They were just trying to get by and that uh, the leaders were trying to get more of whatever was required to survive, and armies came along to try to take away from others what it was to survive. It was just very 
brutal and material that entire time. And although there were glimmers of higher consciousness at the beginning, when the Greeks first came in, the golden age of Greece, and as we finished up Kali Yuga, some of the Renaissance thinking was more elevated. But basically the, the lion's share of the, those two Kali Yuga periods back to back was pretty brutal. The, the bottom most point was when the Roman Empire fell apart. Uh, the Dark Ages took place. You know, we had the plague. Uh, it was just awful. So that unfortunately is, you know, as I say, used kind of as a touchstone for what the future of mankind might be like. But it's unfortunate because the future of mankind for the next 2,000 years is going to be about energy. It's going to be about an entirely different state of consciousness. And that people don't really know what that is yet because we've only had a few centuries of it to, to know. To even start dipping our toes in. Yeah. So that kind of finishes the loop. Kali Yuga was not a great time. A lot of uh, people romanticize that past, and uh, they can keep it. It's, it's yeah, just, it's it would have been a horrible time to be alive. I mean, the life expectancy was like 27 years. It, it was just awful. Brutal. Because people were treated as things. Uh, you know, men were chattel as well as women were chattel. Uh, infant mortality was at like 95%. There was no medicine worthy of the name. Uh, it was, might was right. There were really no laws to speak of. If you got through to the ripe old age of 60, you were a phenomenon. You're a legend, yeah. You were a legend, yeah. yeah. So be happy we're getting through it. And ultimately, kind of doesn't matter because the cycle is just going to go again and again and again and yeah. again. Yeah, yeah. So just go, go inside and enjoy where you are on the ride. Gonna... Well, take advantage of the fact that you are born into Dwapara Yuga, where you have an innate feeling for subtle energy. I think in Kali Yuga, if you taught somebody to meditate, they wouldn't get it. No. no. If you had not, them not in yoga capable. postures, they wouldn't, even they wouldn't get it. They wouldn't have any inner feeling yeah. of subtle energy. But we do. We're born with it now. Yeah. And more and more people are drawn to it because, drawn to going deeper with it because they experience it. And I think that's the gift of Twapara Yuga. And that's what's going to take us through to to yuga where we have even more amazing abilities now at any time in any age any single person any single individual can rise above the age they're in yeah and achieve these heights yeah. but um but those are the rarities within an age well, it's- uh, those are the the great saints, the great saviors that come with a message for not just their time, but the future. You know, this is what you should do to get there. It's breaking the four-minute mile, right? Yeah. 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 
Roger Bannister. It's, yeah, you can be an outlaw. And then, as you point out in the book, and then other people start doing it because they see it's possible. And maybe that, maybe that is what ushers in the next stage. Yeah, and that's, that's for accomplishment. I think that the, the power of meditation is that you don't have to be at the top of your game, so yeah. to speak, like Roger Bannister, a Bannister to uh, gain from meditating or to gain from doing postures or to gain from doing Tai Chi or whatever uh, experiential practices you find your way to. You like them because they give you a direct experience of something, a, a consciousness that is better than the one you're currently living in. Yeah. And that is the allure of them. Uh, that is so powerful. Yeah. When I meditate every day, there isn't some like distant point where I'm like, after I've meditated for a thousand days, I'll... No. Every, every day is it's a gift and it's invigorating and it does get better after thousands of seconds, yeah. but each one is, is good. Um, yeah. You go up in the, you know, the classic stair step manner, yes. right? So you have one day, you have a great meditation. The next day it's not yeah. as good, yeah. but it's still good. You know, but you you're still, you're still rising up in the process, but, yeah. uh, but definitely a thousand days, you know, you can look back and say, wow, you know, this has been transformative, yeah. assuming you have stayed with it and, and given it your, you know, I your mind it. and heart. I literally do it every day. Yeah. And it's you yeah. look back over the years and you're like, oh, but it never really feels like it. Um, Mr. Selby, I don't mean to uh, abruptly cut this one off, but I've got a, I got another person coming in, in three minutes and uh, I'm an idiot because I, I book them all back to back to back because I don't know how to stop working. Um, but you've got a, you've got a brilliant mind, man. I fucking love talking to you. Your books are great. Everybody listening, they're on audible. I'll put them in the description. Absolutely worth a listen. It's a fantastic, uh, different take on life. And, uh, I'm absolutely going to harass you to see if you can get, uh, Graham Hancock to come on my podcast. Uh, I doubt he uh, will. Most people don't. He's but, a, he's a busy man. I know. I know. It's, he's I always, a busy man. you shoot out a hundred emails, 99 won't even report. 98 won't reply. One will reply and say no, and one will reply and say maybe. So I, it's, it, trust me, I have thick skin. So whenever someone knows uh -huh. someone, I shoot my shot. I have no hope that it will work, but I got to try anyway. But with that, let's finish this one up. I will email to you when it's up. We'll schedule another one. I'd love to do another one with you. And um, All right, again, I'm game. Everybody, everybody listening, I highly recommend the physics of God, and I highly recommend the yugas. They're both, they're both fascinating. I'm my own boss. I wouldn't have you on here if I didn't like talking to you. There's no formalities here. There's no one like, hey, can you have on Mr. Selby? No, I have you on because I like talking to you. You're a cool guy. So uh, I hope everybody else takes from that what they will. The books are great. They're mind-blowing. And um, yeah, man, thank you so much, Mr. Selby. Appreciate being on the show. And uh, just let me know when you want to do a yeah. do another. Fuck yeah. If I, uh, if I don't schedule it today, send me a reminder. Send me a reminder right now so I don't forget. And uh we will do it. Mr. Shelby, thank you so much, sir. Right. I got to run. All right. Bye-bye. Recording stopped. Thank you. Bye-bye.